sometimes our effort seems so feeble and so weak, and yet you receive everything we bring to you with a sincere heart because you love us. We're your sons and daughters. And so today, as we turn to your word, Father, we're looking to your precious Holy Spirit to do what you sent him here to do, which is to draw from the depths of your heart the things that God has prepared for those who love him, things that our eyes have not seen and our ears have not heard that have not even begun to enter into our hearts and our understanding all that you have prepared for those who love you, but your spirit's been given to us to reveal them to us. And so, Holy Spirit, we're trusting you now to take this word, to take the things that you have placed in my heart and to guide the words that are spoken that they may speak only the heart and will of God and that we may have eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to grasp what you're saying to each one of us individually this morning. For you are a God who speaks. May we be a people today who have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to us. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Uh, I want to do a single message today, and then we're going to go in a little different direction. I am going to teach somewhat on the renewing the mind. In fact, we kind of touch on that today, because I promised that, and I believe it is important. But let's look at Roman, one of the most beloved verses for Christians that's on many refrigerators, and it's on the lips of a lot of Christians when we get into difficulty. Romans 8, 28. Very familiar verse. We know, and this was Paul writing that, that all things work together for good for those who love God. How many times have I ever heard that from people going through a difficult... Well, we know that God causes all things to work together for good. And I think there are people out there that aren't even Christians that have heard this verse. Well, you know, after all, God's in charge. God's, everything that's going on is God's will. Well, that's not true. And it's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible does teach that God works all things together works all things together for good for those who love God. But see, there's more to the verse. And often what we do is we take a verse and we grab out of it what, what encourages us and pleases us, but we don't read the rest of the verse because there's more to this verse than just God. We know that God, all things work together for good. They don't all work together for good, but they do work all together for good for those who love God. But there's more to the verse. And who are called according to his purpose. So what Paul is saying here is when, when you're set on God's purpose for your life being worked out in you and, and, and your love for him, then he works together with you to cause all things to work together for good, that his purpose in your life may be fulfilled. So he's not just out there wanting to bless you so you can live your life any way you want to do it. He loves you. To, he's your father. And we see in, Roman, in Hebrews chapter 12 that because he's a father, he will correct us and discipline us and to whatever degree he needs to, so that he can produce in us the peaceable fruit of holiness. God wants to produce something in you, in your life, in your life, and through your life. And to the extent that you are tied into God's purpose, he will work all things together for good, so that that purpose in your life 
may be carried out. Now, I was a lawyer for over 20 years, and most of the work that I did had to do with commercial real estate. And as a result, I worked on some projects with, with, with contractors and owners that wanted to build these large buildings. And the first step that they always took is they hired an architect. And the architect would sit down and hear with them what they wanted to do, and the architect would come up with a design. And he would start out with what's called a schematic drawing, which was to give you an image of what this building's going to look like. And then if that was acceptable to the owner, then they would begin to produce blueprints, which now the con- contractor could go and take that image that the owner had in mind, and the blueprint is what gives the contractor his image and instructions of what to do. A number of years ago, we redid this whole stage, and Gary Johnson did a tremendous job of overseeing that project for us, and we went through that same process. We had an architect design some things, and then we had blueprints, even for something as simple as this, because the blueprints take an image or a design or a picture that the owner has in mind and reduces it to concrete terms that the contractor can then take and tie out. I suggest to you that God is the owner of your life. And as the owner, God has an image of what he wants to produce in you. And because he's the owner and has an image, he also has a contractor. That contractor is the Holy Spirit. And he's given to the Holy Spirit a blueprint. An image of what God is planning and is working in your life right now to the extent that you will allow him to. To discover what that image is, God has an idnit. Let's go to verse 29. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined. That just means he planned ahead of time that we be conformed to the image of his son. God's blueprint for you in your life is that he conform your life He conform your heart. He conform your mind. He conform your words. He conform everything about you into the image of His Son. So when they see you, they'll see Jesus. That's an overwhelming task when we know ourselves because we know ourselves too well. So many of us have set out and tried hard to be what this Bible says we're supposed to be, only to be disappointed in ourselves and having failed and gotten discouraged, and then the devil jumps on your back and tells you you'll never make it, you're not really a Christian, because his role is to try to stop this image thing being formed in you. To stop this image from being formed in you. So what is our hope? Our hope is this. Philippians 2, we're not going to show it to you, but you've heard me. Philippians 2 verse 12 says, For we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. That doesn't mean earn your salvation. It means to take what God's put on the inside, which is literally His Son, and work that to the outside. And we're to do that with fear and trembling because why? The next verse says, because it is God who is at work in you both to will and to do whatever you want done. No, to will and to do His good pleasure with your life. 
So God calls us all things to work together for good for those who love God and who are allowing Him and cooperating with Him as He works in you to form the image of His Son in your life. And it's so tempting to look at yourself and say, that's just overwhelming. That can't possibly happen. But it's God who's at work in you. It's God who is at work in you. Now, can we have confidence that God can get a job done? This is the God that parted the Red Sea. This is the God that brought two million people, rebellious people, out of the land of Egypt and and, and defeated the most powerful king on the face of the earth at the time, brought them out on dry land. Again, these are people that wanted to get out, but they didn't want to go in where God was calling them. He got them where he wanted to get them, in spite of themselves. Can that same God do this work in you? See, Satan wants you to look at yourself and see how weak you are, see how uncommitted you are, see how frail you are, see all the things about you, but all the Bible ever tells us is to look at God and what He can do and what He wants to do. And so that's what we're going to look a little bit at today. It's God's goal to do nothing less than to conform you and your life to the full image of His Son. Now, Jesus calls his disciples. He is the image of God in flesh. He said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Told his disciples that. He said, I only do what I see my Father do. I only say what I hear my Father say. And and over and over again, he is the exact image of God. I'm not going to take the time to go through all the scriptures that show you that, because I assume that you believe that by now. So in the beginning of his ministry, he calls... Twelve disciples, and he calls others to follow him, but twelve into an, immediate, uh, into an intimate relationship with him to train them. And then we see in Matthew chapter 5, he begins to introduce them to what this image is like. He begins to introduce them to what God's like as they see him. He begins to introduce them to learn to think in different terms because he's training them to begin to be conformed to his image. So we're going to look at some of the things that he says there. In Matthew chapter 5, it starts, of course, with the... um, Matthew chapter 5 starts, of course, with the... um, It starts with the, the, um, the, the Beatitudes. Thank you. Blessed are those who read that and remember what it says. And then having finished that... We're going to look at verse 13. I'm just going to read down through some of this. He's talking to these people. These were rough fishermen, rough, rough men. These were not sophisticated people. These were not very religious people in terms that the, that the, of the religious people of that day. These were rough people. We'll see, we don't have time to do it. We'll see that they got into squabbles with each other. They were jealous of each other. And what does Jesus start out by telling them? You are the salt of the earth. He's telling them that who you've called to be is to have an influence in this world. Salt has two major functions, and the Bible uses them for these functions. One is it gives taste to something. You ever, ever, ever try to eat one potato chip? I walked by a bag of potato chips yesterday. 
And I just reached in to take just one. But I knew when I took that one, the next one was coming also. And then when I passed by, why? Why? I know none of you have ever been there, but why in bars do they put out peanuts and chips? All of them are salted. Because what salt does is it makes you thirsty to want to drink more, to have more. So salt is a quality that draws, but in those days, salt was also used as a preservative. I mean, we have refrigerators and things like that, but they use salt to preserve meat. So salt here means to have an influence. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? Where is it going to get it from? It's then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled under the foot by men. Keep going. You, here's another image. You are the light of the world. He's talking about, that. he's training them that I'm going to eventually release you into this world and you are going to be my representative into this world. And this is not just a history lesson because Jesus has called us his body. So we are to have the same impact on the world that he called them to have. And these are the people that it was said about them, they turned the world upside down. But we're living at a time when the world's turning the church upside down. Instead of the church having an impact and influence in the world, the world has found its way into the church and is removing the salt and the light from the church. But we're gonna re- he's going to reverse that. You are the light of the world. A city that's set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket. When we were first Christians, one of the popular songs was, This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. I can tell who was in my generation with that. <laughs> but you don't light a lamp and put it under a basket because the purpose of a lamp is so you can see in the darkness. But you put it on a lampstand that it gives light to all who are in the house. Now what's that got to do with anything? Keep going. Let your light so shine before men, others in the world, that they should see. They ought to be able to see something about us. They should see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Now, Jesus isn't teaching us that we're saved by our works. But what He's teaching us, and what James teaches us, is that if you're saved, there ought to be some way we can see that on the outside. It ought to show up somewhere if there's been a change in you. I felt the Lord speaking this to me during praise and worship. He said, just to say this, if, 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 you're, if, you, if your church relationship, if your relationship with God isn't having an impact on you, then something's wrong. If we sing, as Priscilla led us so wonderfully in, about dwelling in His presence, and you may not be at a place where you just feel His presence when you pray, but something isn't happening, then something's wrong. 
I'm not criticizing you, I'm not condemning you, but you've got to ask the question. See, if you're satisfied with where you are, then something's wrong. Because there's no limit to how you can know God. There's no limit to His... In fact, the Bible refers to the unsearchable riches that are in Christ. So if, you're, if your relationship with God is dead and it's hard and it's like plowing through dry ground, that's a sign to you something's wrong. God loves you, but you need to cry out to Him and tell Him what's wrong. I've had times when I've had to do that. And God knows where you are. Just be honest with Him. They said, Lord, what's wrong? Why am I not experiencing something? See, we go by faith, but you ought to experience something. This July, we'll be married 55 years. If we just did that by faith, it would have been hard work. Now, there are times it's by faith, but we're coming to a place in our marriage that we're enjoying one another like we've never had before. And that's what your relationship with God and with Jesus ought to be. And if it's not, that's not a condemnation. That's a wake-up. What's wrong? If something's not working in your body, you go to the doctor and you tell him the symptoms. So he'll tell you what's wrong and what to do. Then Jesus will do that. He told the church in the book of Revelation, he said, he said oh, you're doing a great job as a church but you've got one thing against you. You've stopped walking in love with me. You've left your first love. So you're doing all the right things, but there's no life from me in you because you've left this love relationship with me. And he didn't just leave them there. He told them what to do to correct it. And he said, I'm doing this because whom I love, I correct. So if that's where you are, God's saying this to you this morning because He loves you and he's, He desperately wants a living relationship with you. But if you're satisfied with where you are, you'll just stay there. And God loves you too much. All right, that was, that was free. Where were we before He interrupted us? Oh, let your light so shine. Verse 17, don't think that I came to destroy the law of the prophets. I, came to destroy, I didn't come to destroy, but to fulfill them. For I say to you, until heaven and earth has passed away, not one jot or tittle, by no means of the law shall be fulfilled, of this, until all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these or teaches men to do so will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does or teaches them shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. This is what I want to get you, verse 20. For I say to you, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus is saying, you know, these righteous men, these holy men that you're seeing among you, unless your righteousness goes beyond theirs, you won't get into heaven. What he's talking about is this. Under the law of the Old Testament, the law of the Old Testament was based on your outward actions. So you, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not bear false witness. These were all outward things which you could go through your day and say, I didn't commit adultery, I didn't lie, I didn't steal, and I didn't commit murder, and I did all the other things I was supposed to do. Whew, I'm a righteous person today. So your outward actions, and that's what the Pharisees were, their outward actions were righteous and holy under the law most of the time. 
But inwardly, they were, had rotten hearts. So Jesus is raising the, bell, the, 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 the goal line. He's raising it to a level where it's not about what your deeds are. It's about your heart. Because if your heart is right, your deeds will follow. So this is what he's doing here. And we're going to only look at a few of these. Verse 21. You have heard it said. So he's referring to the Old Testament. You shall not commit murder. So under the Old Testament, it was obvious when you commit murder because the guy you just poked at is dead. If you stabbed him and he's dead, you committed murder. If you stabbed him and he's alive, you didn't commit murder. You did something else wrong. But it was obvious when you committed murder because the person's body died. You've heard said of old, you shall not commit murder or you'll be in danger of judgment. Verse 22. But I say to you, this is everything he's going to say now here is the greater righteousness. The, the, this is the image that God has of us. But I say to you, and this is going to challenge some of you, whoever's angry at your brother without cause. Now many of the better translations leave without cause out. Because when without cause is in there, who decides whether you had a justifiable reason to be angry at your brother? Shall be in danger of judgment. So whoever is angry at your brother shall be in danger of judgment. Whoever says to your brother, Raka. Well, have you ever called your brother Raka unless that was his name? No, that means empty-headed. Or be in danger of the council, but whoever says you fool. In other words, whoever calls your brother a name shall be in danger of hellfire. Whoa, what's that? Keep going. Therefore I say to you, now let's stop a second. He's equating being angry at somebody with murder. Now this is an example of renewing our minds. Our minds are trained that murder means their body's dead. God's word says Murder means I'm angry at my brother. How can being angry at my brother be equated with murder in God's eyes? Because when you're angry in your heart towards somebody, you want to do them harm. You may not be the one that does it, but you want... <laughs> Driving in this morning... going up the Wampanoag Trail, just about the speed limit. That's close. These cars come tearing by me. And I'm, I'm doing what's right, almost. It's right in my eyes. And these guys go flying by me, and my first thought is, and I know none of you have ever thought this, Where is a policeman when they're getting away with this? I want to see them caught, pulled over, and get a ticket because they're doing something wrong when I'm doing something almost right. I want to see harm done to them. And I caught myself. Why is that wrong? 
for two reasons that I know of. One is that speeder that went by me, God loves. There are people in your life that you can look at, don't look to your left or right, that you wonder, how could anybody love them? But God does. That's how He's able to love you. Not only does He love them, He paid the ultimate price so He could have them as His own. That person that you're so angry at, that person that you've held a grudge against, God loves them as much as He loves you. And He paid for their sin that they did to you. He paid for it. And yet you're holding on to it. And the second big reason is because the Bible tells us in several places that when we judge others, we have put ourselves in God's place. James, I think it's four, says that when you judge somebody else, you have put yourself in the position of the lawgiver, and that's God. And to put yourself in God's place, is in God's eyes, is worse than whatever they did to you. Getting quiet this morning. Where's all the jumping around we were doing? This is to the truth. Oh, it gets better. So therefore, let's go to verse um, 23. This will help you understand. Therefore, see, <laughs> one of the things that the Bible does is it teaches you, it teaches you a principle and then tells you what you ought to do to act it out. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and remember that your brother has something against you. So that's kind of hard for us to imagine. If you're going to church, he's talking about bringing an offering, a sacrifice. That's how they worshipped in the Old Testament. They, they, they worshipped, but they didn't get together and worship the way you and I do. They worshipped by bringing a sacrifice, a gift, and they weren't all for sin. Some of them were for adoring God. Some of them were, see, it cost them something to bring an offering to God. And he's saying here, if you bring your gift to the altar, if you've come to worship me, if you've come to pray, if you've come to commune with me, and you remember that your brother has something against you, Come on in, worship God, and He'll show you how to forgive. Because when you love God first, God will help you love them. That's not what He's saying here. Go to the next verse. Leave your gift before the altar and go your way and first be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Now, this isn't some theology. This isn't some... This is Jesus saying these things to us. What does this mean? This means in God's eyes, the way we love one another is a direct insight into how we love God. John says in 1 John that you can say you love God all you want. But how can you say you love God when you don't love those who've been created, whom God loves? So that person that you're still holding that anger against, how can you be angry at them when God loves them? 
and say you love God? Getting even quieter. All right, we got to move on. Okay. Let's go to verse um, 38. I'm going to skip. <laughs> I'm going to skip divorce because a lot of that I don't understand. I'm going to skip telling the truth just to get down to some other issues. Verse 38. You have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That's called retaliation. And that's what our sense of justice is without being renewed in our mind to what God says. So our idea, if somebody does something to you, you have a right and an obligation to do it back to them. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Because there's something built into our nature, our human fallen nature, that wants to protect ourselves. Remember, the very essence of sin that was birthed in the garden when Satan came in was to raise self above God. Because what Satan tempted them to do... Oh my Lord Jesus, where did the time go? What Satan tempted them to do was to put, put themselves above God. Has God said... And what he got them to do was to think God's keeping something from you. Because God knows that if you eat of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, God knows you're going to be like him. And the subtle implication is God's keeping something from you that you're entitled to, so go get it yourself. That was the essence of what he was telling them. Of course, he didn't dress it up that way. He made that fruit look so good to touch. He made it look so appealing to the senses so that they yielded to their senses and violated the clear commandment that God had given them. So every instinct in our human nature is to protect ourselves, is to defend ourselves, and to promote ourselves. And those are the antithesis of the image of Christ that God wants to perform in you, to form in you. You've heard it said of old, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, Do not resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. This is crazy stuff. Next verse. If if anyone sues you to take away your tunic, let him have your coat also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. I wouldn't have the nerve to stand here and read this to you if Jesus hadn't said this. But if Jesus has said this, how can we just dismiss it? And this is what the church has done. We've taken these words and just kind of pay lip service to them, kind of skip over them. But the head of the church, your Lord, my Lord, has uttered these words. And when my understanding and when my desire and when my relationships don't line up with this, the issue's not these words, the issue's me. And if I don't understand it, that's one of the things to go to. Lord, show me what this means. How does this get applied in my life? What he's getting at here, the root of getting at here, is he's trying to kill in us self. The last night we were in Los Angeles, we went out with our two sons and, uh, to a beautiful restaurant and, uh, right by the water and, and 
and the waiter comes over and real nice talkative guy and um, he was talking to our young sons who were about his age and he said, you know, I just got married. Oh, oh, Matthew said, I've just, you know, why are you here? I just had a, well, just had a son and they're, they're out here to meet their grandson. Oh, isn't that wonderful? How long have you been married? I've been married two years. That's right. He said, I've just gotten married last year. He said, oh, I hope I can make it. He said, most of my friends are divorced. So I looked at him and said, this July, we're married 55 years. And his eyes went like that. I said, to each other. <laughs> I didn't say that. And he said, what's your secret? I said, there's two. I said, my parents were divorced. He said, mine were two. I said, we made a commitment to each other before we got married that come hell or high water, and they both come, we were not going to get divorced. And I said, in the hell and high water, through the difficult times, it was that commitment ahead of time that held us together. I said, the second thing, which we're really just learning now, I came, I heard from a pastor, and you've heard him too, because it was Robert Morris. We just heard this wonderful series back in January. Robert Morris has said this. He said, you got, we don't understand what marriage is. The purpose of marriage is, is not to enjoy your life. <laughs> Those of you that are laughing have been married a while. He said, God's purpose for marriage is that you learn how to die. How many, I've never had, Mr. Michael Slater, how many couples have come in for premarital counseling? Oh, I can't wait to die. But that's what it is. It's dying to self. But isn't that what Jesus said is required of a disciple? If you want to be my follower, if you want to be my disciple, are these just vain words that Jesus threw out? Or does he mean this? This is what the church is missing and why the church is floundering and why the church is so weak because we're trying to receive things from God and God blesses us and wants to, but there's another side to this. In order to enjoy that blessing, you have to join Him. We're going to talk about this during this, this Easter season. You've got to join Him on the cross. Hmm. Jesus said, if you're going to be a follower of mine, a disciples, you must deny yourself. And that's what's at the root of this. This is all self. It's defending myself. It's protecting myself. It's striking back at my, for myself. And you, you may say, see, what happens, the world see this as weakness. He's hanging on the cross. And everybody that was observing that, at least initially, thought this was a sign of weakness. He finally ran out. They captured him. They've nailed him. They had no idea the power that was in what he did on that cross. The power that saved the world from sin. Your life and my life came because Jesus turned the other cheek. Because Jesus did not strike back. When they took his robes, he let him take everything else. And that's the blueprint he has for you and me. Is it any wonder why Jesus said, the road's narrow if you're going to follow me? See, this is not the kind of preaching that builds large churches. But this is the kind of preaching that builds strong Christians. 
And I told, the, I told the elders several years ago, when I feel God's telling me to begin to preach, when I did a series for almost a whole year on follow me, is we, it may be you and me, but I've got to tell the truth in love because this is what's not happening. And there are many churches where it is. Heard a wonderful me- I'm not going to finish this today. Heard a wonderful message by Francis Chan. If you've got a chance to listen to him, do it. This man knows God, but he also knows what we're talking about. Wrote a great book called Crazy Love, which I, which I, I read thinking it was all about how much God loves me. And it cleaned my clock. I had a message that Pastor Chris actually showed us about, about so many Christians are really swimming in this world with swimming, you know, floaties on. Ever see little kids out in the water? You know, they got a life vest or they got floaties on their arm. So that way they can paddle around with the, with the illusion that they can swim. And the church, so many Christians, especially young ones, are being propped up by things that if they lose their swimmies, their floaties, are they going to swim? What's holding you up? What's holding you in this difficult time? What's holding you in church? What's holding you? And many of you can look around and see people that were here that aren't here anymore. Why? Some of them may have gone somewhere else. But why? Because what they held them up before, they didn't feel like they were getting so they'll go find it somewhere else. Paul talks about this. He said, there'll come a time when people will accumulate for themselves preachers of their own liking to satisfy their itching ears. And so the question is, what's holding you in the, in the body of Christ? What's holding your commitment to Him? What's holding you? And if you lost all of that, would you still love Him? Would you still serve Him? Read the book of Job and see what a man went through who was tested to the ultimate. And Job displayed weaknesses. Job made mistakes. But what ultimately held Job in is he would not curse God. He would not turn his back on God. He was mad at God. He didn't think he was being trite correctly. But he would never, ever... He said, though you kill me, I will trust you. That's a man that's not using floaties in his relationship. This is a time of the year we started as examining your relationship with God. What's it really like? Can it stand the tests that lie before us? You've come through so many tests. Can it stand it? And the Holy Spirit is here to help us. We're going to have to end, end here. There's more because I hope you come back next week. <laughs> We're going to put you back together again. remember it's God who's at work in you to do this God hasn't just set you off with instructions and say this is what I want you to become and come back and see me when you're done no he just wants you to give him permission to work in you you're here today because he's been at work in you your presence here today or online is because he has been at work in you because if you haven't noticed you've been through some tests If you haven't noticed, there's some things that have come against you to pull you out of the body of Christ and you're still here. You may not be as all you think you need to be, but you're still 
breathing. You're still here. You're still in church. You're still watching online. Because, now listen to me, because it's God who's been at work in you, both to will and to do His good pleasure. And the whole purpose of this message is, He's not done yet. He's not done yet. So next week, um, we're not going to get finished today. Next week, we're going to show you what the completed rendering, that was the word I was looking for, the complete image of what Christ wants to be in your particular life. Because what He wants to be in your life is different than He wants to be in my life, and yet the basic qualities are still there. Let's pray. Father, Oh, how you love us. How you can look at us knowing what so many people don't know, our innermost thoughts. Knowing what many times we don't know, the dark recesses of our hearts, the things that are held down in there. How how can you, knowing every word we've ever uttered, every thought we've ever had, How can you love us so much that you would send your own son to take our place and take our sin and take our punishment so that not just could we go to heaven and not go to hell, but so that you could have a living, intimate relationship with us right here, right now. Oh, the price you paid, how much you must love us. So today, Father, we just make the choice to look honestly at ourselves and bring our lives to you just as they are this morning. Some of us may be just on fire for God and and we want more. Some of us may be, the coals maybe feel like they're about to go out. They were hot one time, but they're they're simmering down and, and, and you can blow on them by the Holy Spirit and revive this relationship. Some have been in church for years and never known what we sang about this morning. And so all the Lord wants us to do is be honest with Him. And so, Father, we take our eyes off of ourselves and we let go of all of our failures and all of our weaknesses and all the things that tell us we can't and we won't and we'll do, fail again. And we just let them down. We lay them at the foot of the cross and we just look up at Jesus who was the author and the finisher of our faith. We saw, hey, Lord, I'm willing, even willing to be made willing, to lay my life down that I may know you in all of your fullness. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Maybe you're here this morning or you're, or you're watching online and what I've just talked about is foreign to you. Maybe you're watching for the first time or you're here for the first time or you, maybe you've been coming for a while or maybe for years. And you've never made a commitment of your life to Christ. Maybe you're like I was. I was raised in church my whole life. 
I was taught that Jesus is the Son of God. I was taught that He died and paid for the sins of the world. In fact, when we were married, I was a deacon in the church. But I could have died. If I'd have died then, I'd have split hell wide open with all the scriptures I knew and with all my time in church and all my service as a deacon because I never invited Christ into my life. See, he didn't just die for the sins of the world. He died for you. He died to pay for your sins. And what's required is you must receive him in your life as the one that paid for your sins. You must invite him into your life and then you must turn your life over to him. And his promise is if you'll do that, he will come and live inside of you and reveal himself to you. It's a lifelong process, but it begins with a momentary act of your will. If you're watching this morning or you're here this morning and you've never made that commitment, I want to help you right now to help you to do that by leading you in a simple prayer. Or maybe you've done this before and you've wandered off and you're just out there somewhere and you don't know how to get back. Jesus is here for you this morning. So here's what I want you to do. And you just need to mean this with all your heart. I want to lead you in a very simple prayer and then I want to give you a little bit of instructions. I'm going to ask everyone here to join me. Say this, Father, I come to you in the name of Jesus. You know everything I've ever done, everything I've ever said, everything I ever thought. For whatever did not please you, I ask you to forgive me. Wash me in the blood of Jesus. Make me clean in your sight. Jesus, I call upon you to come into my life as my Savior. And I take my life as it is right now. The good and the bad. The things I've done right and the things I've done wrong. And I put it into your hands to be Lord over my life. Fill me with your Spirit that I may live strong for you for the rest of my days. Thank you for loving me this much. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. If you're watching online this morning and you, made, you prayed that prayer, thank you, Gary. You prayed that prayer with me this morning with all of us. Here's what I want you to do. Tomorrow morning, There's a number at the bottom of your screen right now. Tomorrow morning, I want you to call that number. Someone will answer that phone because we want to send to you some free material that can give you a better understanding of what you've just done today. And if you have a need, they'd be happy to pray with you. If you're here this morning and you made that same commitment to the Lord, if you come right over over right here. Uh, Sister Maria is right over here. She has the same materials for you that we're going to give to the people that's online. Praise the Lord. Let's stand together. Wednesday night, I'm not going to tell you anymore. 